Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And today on Review the Future, we're talking about the hypocalypse and the future of punishment. But first... We have an update about our graphic novel. Let go. It is now available digitally for people who don't uh, use old-fashioned books anymore. That's right. You can get it on Comixology, which, if you don't know, is like uh, an iTunes for comic books. It's a website and an app. And, uh, yeah, so this graphic novel, again, you probably have heard us talk about it many times now, but we're very proud of it. And uh, we did want to thank one of our listeners for being kind enough to give us an Amazon review. Yes, let's uh, give a shout out to listener Randon, who gave us a really thoughtful and nice review on the Amazon page. And if any of you have read the book and you want to do something for us that doesn't cost any money, this is like the best thing you could do. It, it really means a lot to us and it helps us uh, to get the word out about the book. It's really nice to see that five-star review there. It'd be nice to see 10 more of those. Sure. <laughs> but enough of the uh, sales pitch for right. our comic book. Yeah. Uh, and on to the topic at hand. Yeah. If you're on Comixology, you can get the uh, the digital version now and the print version still available on all those sites we talked about before, Amazon and what have you. You can go to letgocomic.com. Right. Okay. Yeah. We should save the URL before moving on. That's what I was trying to get to. Letgocomic.com. Okay. Now I'll stop selling you and we'll get on to the show. So I want to talk about Hippocalypse. Okay. What's that? That's a portmanteau of hypocrisy and apocalypse. And yep. It was a uh, just a really funny <laughs> coinage that I saw on Robin Hansen's blog, Overcoming Bias, the other day. He wrote an interesting post about this idea. So I thought it'd be worth just discussing briefly what the idea was that he uh, came up with in the post and and maybe uh, playing with it a little bit. Yeah, this idea is pretty much right in our wheelhouse. It It's... Closely related to things we've talked about already in a way. and it's, Yeah, but it's a different angle on them, I yeah, think, yeah. In, in an interesting way. So let's just get to what exactly are we talking about when we talk about Hippocalypse. Um, the premise here is that uh, a lot of people have been working for a while now to develop technology that can essentially, uh, this is Hansen's phrase, and I think it's a good one, read people's feelings. Okay. Right? So it can interpret... Uh, any number of data like facial expressions, gazes, word choices, tone of voice, your sweat level, your skin conductance, your gait, various nervous habits, like if you're biting your nails or uh, uh, tapping your fingers, and many other sort of body features. What you're looking at and how long, pupil emotions, dilation. Yeah, your gaze, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all of these kinds of things, some of which can be read from video, some of which can be read from audio, uh, some of which can be read from various sensors that we now carry around with us all the time and other sensors that we might start carrying around with us soon. Uh, they are all ways by which we kind of leak what we're actually thinking. And we do this without us, the assumption that most people are going to be able to pick any of this up. And another point that that Robin makes, which I think is really uh, uh, critical here, is that we're often hypocritical about our feelings, right? So if you heard us talk about his recent book, Elephant in the Brain, re, uh, a few podcasts ago, then you are already familiar with this idea. But we are always um, lying to ourselves, basically, about our own feelings because this is a socially... Uh, uh, 
beneficial thing for us to do. And we've been sort of evolutionarily bred to to do it over many and it's one of those things that everybody kind of knows like it's not exactly you know a radical statement to say that human beings are hypocritical at the same time no one ever personally feels like they're being a hypocrite it's one of those things where it's like well obviously the whole human race is hypocritical but not me Um, right which is the odd which is exactly what you would tell yourself if you were being hypocritical all the time and that's kind of the point of of that book which i won't go over again you can listen to our episode about it or read it but um but if you take all these things and you put them together, then you get a situation where in the near future, we might have technology that makes it virtually impossible to get away with being hypocritical um, in regular life without being also found out by all those people around you, right? So we should maybe We should maybe give like a, some small examples. Yeah, let's give some examples. I mean, uh, I mean, just everyday interactions with. Well, let's say you're talking to someone, like you're talking to your boss, and you find them really boring and annoying, and you hate them, and normally you just nod and smile. Um, but right. imagine now that his enhanced augmented glasses can immediately discern and quantify your dislike of him. Well, that puts you in sort of an awkward situation right away. Yes, exactly. And of course, there's some level on which your boss may know that you're sort of half paying attention to him or something. But by making it really explicit, by putting that number right in his vision or however it works, um, it's going to change the relationship that we have to these sort of everyday hypocrisies, uh, some of which we're aware of, like pretending to pay attention to your boss, and some of which we're unaware of. Like they're completely subconscious, right? Like, um, you know, noticing an attractive member of the opposite sex. Right. um, uh, When they walk past you, which you barely even have control over, right? I mean, you can sort of modulate how you express it uh, externally, but you can almost do nothing to change whether or not you, you have that notification event in your mind. And if that's leaking out through some, you know, physical thing that can be picked up by an algorithm analyzing video footage, then in a near future time when there's just a bit more surveillance and a bit more processing floating around, uh, you might basically just, that might be the same as swiping right on a dating app is now. It might be that transparent to the uh, to the other person and to everyone around you. Well, and the article kind of made me imagine a scenario where you could almost have a, a graph of, you know, everyone's sexual attraction to everyone else say in an office or a school environment, oh God. Um, you know, because those, that data might be relatively easy to crunch, you know, and, you know, again, you're just going off of, you know, how long does person A look at person B? Do they like linger on them a little too long? Right. Does their heart rate increase? Any number of like weird things that you might not immediately think of. Now, heart rate, a quick tangent is yeah. an interesting one, though, because that's the kind of thing that's not going to be externally sensible that easily right i mean no i think they can do it from skin color in sufficiently high good quality god okay video. i didn't realize well that's okay i i guess that sounds like pretty advanced but sure I, I would gather that's possible yeah although it might be the kind of thing that instead we are voluntarily putting a sensor on ourselves right to catch our heart rate for our own fitness purposes right but then it's a question of whether you share that information right. publicly right and one of the things that uh that uh, Robbins talks about is, you know, a lot of the tech that you would be subjected here will not be, um, you know, voluntary tech. It would not be a Fitbit that you put on your wrist. It would be something that's ambient, you know, out in the world. So there's 
whatever, there's camera drones or there's other people's life logging devices or there's um, microphones everywhere or whatever. That so it, your only way to avoid this would be to wear a mask or in public, basically. Right. You can wear a mask or like a burqa. Yeah, he, um, yeah. <laughs> he talks a lot about burkas in the article, which is funny. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, or like some other kind of like extremely uncovering in, in uh, clothing. But, you know, even that seems like it has its limits. And, you know, uh, we'll we'll see where the technology exactly shakes out. But I think those are there's pretty high social costs, like wearing a mask around. Yeah, I don't I don't so think anybody thinks do that. that that's going to be the way this goes no and if your co- if your society doesn't already have common burqa use i don't think it's going to change because sure. of this you know some places people wear burqas they'll keep doing that i'm sure but i i don't th- i don't think that's gonna you know radically change people's calculus on whether or not to wear the burqa i don't think so yeah so i mean <laughs> it's it's uh this this immediately reminded me before we jump back into Hanson's thing. I just wanted to say this reminded me of this surveillance and law issue that we talked about a long time ago. Yes, um, like the example that we gave then, and I I think this is only a mediocre example, um, which you'll see why in a second uh, is like speeding in mm-hmm. a car, right? So right now we have these laws that are set up to really aggressively punish speeding because implicit in the law is an understanding that most offenders will never be caught, right? So because you know that most of the time you're just going to get away with your speeding, we have to punish you really strongly when we catch you. It makes it a better deterrent, and it also sort of makes up for all the times we didn't. And it also is a kind of hypocrisy, right? The fact that, you know, the speed limit is set at where it is, and yet almost everybody treats it like a guideline that they can go 5 or 10 above, you know? Right, right. It's an imprecise thing. It's set not at an exact, like threshold of safety but at a politically decided on yeah number that's then fudged and we give a certain amount of leeway to police officers to stop you or not but if it was super precise right and say like the second you went a, like a mile per hour above it uh and a drone picked up that you did that and right. sent, mailed you a ticket instantly right you instantly were like debited some money then we would we'd be in a situation where uh we'd have to rationalize that law one way or another. Either we'd have to lower the penalty so that it debited you, you know, each time you sped, but like you weren't bankrupting people (laughs) for speeding, which is something that we obviously... The problem is that then rich people could speed with impunity. Yes, which is already kind of... I guess that's already true. But yes, but that would... But their time still gets wasted by being pulled over. Right. Which this would eliminate that. Yes. So they would probably be... That's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a dangerous idea. Or, you know, you could, um, I mean, obviously the reason this is not a great example is because in a world where we have drones that are issuing speeding tickets, we probably also have self-driving cars. And then at that point, the cars can't speed. Sure, sure. So you're in like a different world. But let's imagine for a second that that's not a problem because that's confusing. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. But just imagine that for whatever reason, humans are still driving the cars and I mean, we could also change the limits, right? We could change the speed limits. You could bump them up 10 miles per hour to where people actually drive. Right. And then when you go over it, you actually get a ticket. Um, and maybe you still have to rationalize the f- the fares, uh, the fees down a little bit. But it basically is more similar to how things work now. I think that might work better. Now, the other example that maybe doesn't um, go out of date with self-driving cars was is drug laws, right? I mean, if everybody who did drugs, you know, in public or even remotely near a camera was immediately busted for them, we would have 
to reach a different equilibrium with our laws. Right. One would exactly. think. Right. It would cause such a gigantic glut of cases <laughs> if for no other reason that we yes. have to make some kind of change. And I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking since we talked about this, there has been, um, I think, some small evidence of, of how culture might deal with enforcement getting too good for the laws as written. And uh, the example um, comes from red light cameras. So this is rolling back to cars for a second. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, red light cameras were installed, you know, they're this automated enforcement mechanism that, uh, in, they're very simple in a certain, you know, set of circumstances, they take pictures of cars and then some human processor somewhere looks to see if a law got broken and issues a ticket. And these have been aggressively rolled back in the United States. People hate these. They are, between 2012 and 2016, I have some numbers here, the number of red light cameras in operation in America fell by 21%. So this is not (laughs) due to, you know, the technology is there, it works, you can use it. Um, But what has happened is that politically it's become unpalatable and it's being rolled back. So another option is, you know, when the enforcement gets too good for the laws and the laws don't appear rational anymore you just voluntarily make the enforcement worse <laughs> well and i think in right? the case of surveillance you have a handy argument ready I, I i don't know what the argument was in the case of the red light cameras but i know that in general with surveillance i mean people are already concerned about their privacy so you can always make the enforcement purposely worse and say you're doing it because of i don't know civil liberties or something right i mean right you have a ready reason to sort of roll that back and yeah so that is an easy way to get out of this bad equilibrium where everyone's a criminal all of a sudden yeah yeah that's true i mean that excuse exists there so maybe that's part of the reason why that's the way that's going but i just think that's sort of weak evidence for yeah these things might just get not adopted by society even though the technology is fully there and works um so jumping back into some stuff that was in this article um right what if everyone is uh, perceived as a uh sexual harasser for example which is one of the right so this is examples like, he brings up yeah this is like sort of the big um example that he uses and his point that many of the things that we now consider the line for sexual harassment such as like repeatedly soliciting your coworkers after being told no or um, uh, the things like that, or, or saying uh, lewd uh, things, or, or um, staring, things like that, things that are, you know, socially uh, sort of uh, nor- the norm is that you don't do them. Doing those things can all be construed as sexual harassment in this current climate. And he wonders whether in a future where you can like look up people's, you know, objective sexual interest in someone that just having those feelings might start to feel like a choice that you are making to other people and might to might start to feel harassing in the way that say, uh, you know, uh, talking about your genitals to a coworker now feels harassing. Right? What's well, complicated. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, some of this stuff is arguably involuntary, um, you know, at the level that we're talking about, you know, where it's just sort of how you interact with a person, right? right? Maybe you stand a little tiny bit closer or you pay a little more attention or you laugh a little more at their jokes. Right. Right. Stuff that, you know, you wouldn't call sexual harassment now. 
Right. Um, but might be signs that someone's attracted to someone else. Right. But again, when that's like quantifiable and trackable, it might start to feel like the person who doesn't want the attention, like a bit of an invasion, right? Because they can see, you know, blinking there inside their augmented glasses, you know, this person is sexually interested in you. And the person is like, well, but, you know, I'm just, I can't help it. Right. Right. I mean, that's a scenario you could have. But then at the same time, in a world where everybody has this technology and is aware that that's how it works, you can possibly say to the person that's saying it's involuntary, well, you know (laughs) that you're being tracked like this. So by merely putting yourself in the position where your sexual attraction can be monitored like that, that itself is a choice, right? Right. Um, so and I, then once you make that choice, you're sort of saying you're going to take responsibility and, right. and mask those feelings more acceptably, at least to the level that other people around you are doing. And I think one thing that he does bring up here is that norms really matter in this circumstance, because if everybody has, you know, a certain level of uh, letting it show that they are they are doing, then that becomes the norm. And that's probably not harassment. But if you're just like a little bit more apparent than other folks, then it's going to start to feel like you are doing that on purpose um, and might feel uh, like you say, like an invasion to someone else. So you have to be, I think people are very flexible though and very adaptive and very adept as, as Robin has shown at lying to themselves. So I think they're actually going to find, I think people are going to adapt to this pretty well. And I think that they're mostly going to, by getting the feedback themselves, figure out ways to, either trick their body or trick their mind in order to not show these things. Well, it's like if you're getting notifications that person A is interested in you, Yeah. just like any notifications today, block them, turn them off. Right. And now they don't exist to you. And if you're getting notifications that you appear interested in person X who you, who has blocked you, then that's information that you can process too. You don't want to be embarrassed, so you're going to probably modulate your own behavior. Yeah, so the the question is, like, how do people act, you know, not just... Because obviously, yeah, we're not just going to drop this technology on the people of today overnight. It's like, how do people adapt to this technology when it's introduced slowly and everybody is aware of it as it's happening? And yeah, I think people will adapt well, but there are a few different ways that can go, right? I mean, so yes. so one of the things we're alluding to now is... People may be choosing when you when you say blocking or shutting things off or ignoring, that's sort of equivalent to what you were saying with the red light cameras. It's sort of like voluntarily relinquishing the, the right, technology. Surveillance. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's so but that's I mean the other way you could go is people could also just relax about their hypocrisy. That maybe seems I don't know if that's far fetched. I think <laughs> I think there's an element of that. Right. I think there's an element of okay we're all going to have to accept these things that are laid bare now as kind of the new normal. Uh, Right. Well, and if we can do that, then I actually think we have nothing to fear from this because most of these hypocrisies are not good in themselves. They're good because they help us keep decent social relations going. And if we can keep good social relations going without them, then we don't really need them. I don't think, um, you know, he, he gives an interesting uh, sort of dichotomy in the article that I thought was worth discussing, which on one side, there's like the kind of masked feelings that we use to kind of protect ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And those can go away. Um, so 
uh, the boss example that you used earlier falls into this. If your boss sees that you disrespect him, right, uh, or sees that you're skeptical of his idea or something like that, even though you're trying to hide that from him, that could be like materially bad for you. So um, that might go away, right? Um, might go. What do you mean, might go away? Might it, it might be impossible for you to hide your skepticism from your boss. Right. So but you might just, have to yeah. either convince yourself not to be skeptical somehow, or your boss might have to, you know, accept more skepticism from his workers in general because they all seem skeptical, right? Right. But eventually only people will survive in jobs where they can successfully put up a front. Right. Right. Or That's appropriate. Don't find themselves skeptical, which Or the boss does is particularly just doesn't care about. Or that. the boss doesn't yeah. care if you do your work. And all of those are kind of good equilibriums to kind of reach eventually yeah. i feel like right um he gives some other examples like um you know there's a big guy in a rowdy bar and everybody kind of like leaves him alone because they don't want to fight with him but they also find him you know kind of annoying or like uh intense so uh that guy oh that guy you know that guy might see that, that everybody everybody hates that guy he might realize that everybody in this bar hates me and they're all just ignoring me because they don't want me to start trouble with them and that could go one of two ways, right? I mean, either that's going to enrage the guy, uh, and that's what makes him that guy in the first place. Or, you know, for some percentage of that, guys, I feel like that guy might realize, I don't want everyone to hate me, and maybe I should work on this a little bit, right? Sure. I mean, I think I think that's the kind of thing where if you're the, the meek person who doesn't want to get beat up, you might be losing a protection. But, but I just want to paint that... equilibrium is not so bad. Paint that scene a little more finely, right? Because yeah. I am imagining, like, you're, you're, you're at a bar, yeah, right? And somebody next to you is just talking, like they do, is just talking loudly about some yeah. obnoxious, maybe horribly offensive stuff. <laughs> Yes. And like you just, just sharing too much with you. And you just like give loudly. this like look to the person you're with like, oh God, can you believe this guy? Yeah. And somehow this guy's sensors just pick that up and he's like you in the booth across the room, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like what's your effing problem with me? Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, that's how I imagine this going. That's exactly how it goes. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're wise ass, you're like, well, it's the same effing problem that everybody here has. Yeah. And then he samples quickly. And he's like, no, your, your score is statistically the lowest, though. <laughs> <laughs> you hate me the most and I can prove it with a graph. But you're right. He might maybe I doubt he'd get self-reflective, but he might. Well, I mean, that's, I guess, the hope. But yeah, yeah. I think there is some. So that's one kind of thing that he talks about. Uh, some other examples he gave, which I just thought are interesting to think about, so I'll list them, are uh, at your church, they could see that you're not feeling very religious. I don't know how they measure measure religiousness from this stuff. But that seems like a disaster for your church. Your church possible. does not want that technology. Well, they certainly don't want it to become some kind of ritualized thing where you get called out for it, right? Because if that happens, they're all going to... They're sowing the seeds of their own. Exactly. They're all going to disintegrate <laughs> really quick. People are going to start going to the church where they don't do that. I'm thinking that. church is a no-surveillance zone. I mean, you might have certain like diehard cults that are like, only people that are truly proven pious by the algorithm are welcome here. But right. I, I mean, but I assume most churches are happy to have bodies in the room and they're data not Scientology, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. feel like that'll happen. I think there'll be definitely algorithmic cults soon enough. Um, another one he said was your school and or your nation might see that your pledge of allegiance was not heartfelt. That one chilled me in particular just because I immediately, my brain went to a very dictatorial reality. Like imagine not our current world, but, but a country where 
there's a very strong dictator and the Pledge of Allegiance is taken extremely seriously and they just use, you know... Every day we shoot the exactly. bottom 1% of patriots. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, they just use this as a purging thing. So, you know, all of that sounds like those are the potential, you know, kind of worst case scenarios for um, this sort of just like hypocrisy is protecting someone. If you pull the hypocrisy out, that protection goes away. It's not exactly clear how those people are going to replace that protection. But what Hansen was more worried about and what I find more interesting is this other thing, which what he calls uh, collisions between better tech for reeling feelings and common social norms, rules and laws. So this is more like the, uh, the speedy limit thing, the, the drug thing, uh, the sexual harassment thing. And in general, um, there are just symbolic purposes that influence many of the norms and laws that we adopt, right? I mean, his argument that like X is not about X, it's all about Y, that kind of canard that, that Hansen uses a lot is, um, it's basically related to this, you know, we often support all kinds of rules, not because of the specific good consequence of having the rule, but because we like the way that supporting the rule makes us look to our fellow humans right right so i mean his example for this were like laws against prostitution you know i think any kind of vice law kind of follows uh, this but i mean also just all all numbers of laws laws for you know seat belts laws for schools i feel like all kinds of laws there's an element to them that's symbolic well and most things are a mixture right like most things do have some sort of you know uh utility to them some sort of purpose and then mixed in with that is is a bit of the, the signaling or the symbolic nature of it, right? Right. Uh, but when we care more about the symbolic part of it um, and it collides with this tech, that's where you could really get some sticky situations where, you know, we refuse to update our laws uh, to make them more rational or our norms because we want to be seen as supporting, you know, this this or that good social thing. And uh, then the result is that we end up over enforcing that thing, basically, because we're using this, you know, technology that that takes away plausible deniability from many people in many circumstances. I mean, I think that could be the case. Again, I, I you know, we we can't have it like a sort of a non-functional uh, equilibrium, though. I mean, like, again, society has got to to move forward one way or another though. So I, I still think there's limits on, on how bad this could be, I guess. Right. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. And one thing that he does say is, you know, this is likely to happen gradually. Um, you know, I'm more optimistic about technical progress than he is, I think. And I also think it will happen gradually. Uh, one interesting person in the comments of the article, uh, who works on effective computing systems said that in his opinion, based on working in the field. Um, By the way, effective computing is this emotional tracking type of software, yeah, right? That's the name Just for in this. case people didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, sorry. That's the name for this sort of general field of computing that tries to tell what your affect, your emotion is right. from some data. And uh, he works in that field, and he said emotionally aware computers are very far off. Like his prediction was not in any of our lifetimes. Wow, I'm not, okay. I'm not sure that I totally agree with that. I think, you know, in a... Um, in a sort of wildly rapid Chris Wylian scenario it might come in, you know, in my lifetime, but I don't see it being like right around the corner because I do think you need a tremendous amount of data, like a tremendous amount of video and other kinds of surveillance shit, uh, as well as 
uh, a lot of processing for that data to really get to the kinds of insights we would need to like effectively do uh, a wide range of of emotional um you know, processing. Yeah, but some things are, are easier than others. Right. There are some low-hanging fruit that I think we are going to hit. Like the gaze soon. tracking to me seems relatively low-hanging. Yes. Yeah, where you're looking is one of the, the one of those leaky signals that uh, I think we can track more easily. It's also something you have more conscious control over, so I feel like people can be trained by feedback to, like, look less. I mean, people are already trained by society to, like, not stare at each other, which is uh, something that, you know, human beings sort of, do naturally but that we we socialize each other not to do it in a rude way um i think we can probably do that um over time i think in general like specific like yes no states that can be determined from this are the places where i have the most concern that it might go badly so things like sexual attraction things like intentional lying things like um, nervousness versus calmness which are um, relatively one axis compared to other, you know, I mean, I can't tell. It's going to make a ruling. I mean, you might get a percentage uh, of confidence depending on how these systems are created. Right, right, right. But right. there's going to be, you know, if it's over 50%, that's a type of ruling one way or the other. Is that what you mean by right. I, sort of binary? Right, right, right. Yeah, I just mean like you're either attracted to someone or you aren't or something like you're that. lying or you're not you're lying or, or you're likely you're to be lying, lying or not or you're not i mean i think you know we're not gonna be able to tell if you are lying to yourself and you don't know it probably that seems like you know too complex to pull the strings and figure out i don't even know how you train the system to do that because how do you get reliable data on the way in um but i feel like there are some uh some more binary more resolvable states of the mind that could really be leaked out this way in a way that might, you know, force some changes in, in social norms in order to deal with the loss of, of these kind of useful hypocrisies. Um, yeah. So a lot to think about there. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like we could come back to this topic a lot. Um, actually, you know, I hate to bring up our book again, but I have to because we had a little bit of this in there, right? I yeah, mean, there is something that uh, we did some had some like real time lie detection and what that would mean. Right, right. Our our personal assistant software that we have in the book uh, kind of grows as the book goes on and gets a little bit better and more supple at uh, figuring out the emotional states of the people um, who are being observed by the user. And we that was something we tried to dramatize in the book because... You know, and, and versus the other technologies in the book, it does go a bit slower, like in the sense that uh, at the end of the book, it's not like fully able to tell you everything about someone. It's just right. it's just a like kind of like a human friend. It's saying like, hey, I think your wife might be uh, might be holding something back, <laughs> um, you know, like kind of the way your friend might if he saw you have an interaction. with Right. Um, because that was the way. We imagined it would go in the short term. Well, and part of the reason I wanted to bring that up is a final point that maybe I want yeah. to make about this is like, it's interesting to wonder about how the social norms will be around. If I get a percentage chance that you're lying as I'm talking to you, what are the social norms? How acceptable is it for me to throw that in your face right then and there and say, I think you're lying right now. The computer says so. 
or I think you're attracted to me right now. The computer says so. And <laughs> I feel like the a prediction. Very romantic thing for you to say, John. <laughs> yes. Uh, my well, my technology is not that advanced right now, so I'm not I'm not that confident. Um, it's like yeah, but uh, yeah. I mean, I think the the prediction I'm leaning towards is that that's not going to be probably that socially acceptable. To like, I feel like we're going to have a lot of this information at our fingertips and then ignore a lot of it. Right, right. Yeah, it does seem like we're headed toward a strange equilibrium where we all agree to pretend that it's not, that we don't know. While obsessively looking at it. While obsessively, furtively looking at it. Yes. yes. And like definitely knowing as much as we can because we're also obsessed with that. But but I think that that does feel like the most human, most like near to our current, world that uh, way of dealing with all you know this. it's kind of like the futuristic version of the guy who's proud to not own a tv or proud to not be on facebook he's like oh i don't look at emotional tracking i just i just read people the natural way man yeah. <laughs> i feel like there's gonna be people like, like that cut to inside his eyes it's like like as all the oh yeah of course he's a hypocrite of course he's actually checking yeah yeah well and eventually you'll be able to tell if he's a hypocrite through this technology too right so it's like he'll be saying that but he'll be ringing all kinds of liar bells on your machine while he does it oh it gets so circular <laughs> all right shall we talk about uh punishment now Yeah, let's let's get into punishment okay so i want to talk about the future of punishment um i i just wanted to riff on this topic a little bit it's sort of been on my mind actually uh john danaher had actually suggested this topic to us a while ago um and I, um, gosh, maybe like two years ago, I just like noticed it in my, my Twitter inbox recently when I was talking to him about our comic yeah. and I was like, oh yeah, that is a good topic. Um, and, uh, here's sort of how I wanted to organize it. Okay. Right. Cause I wanted to talk about what the different purposes of punishment are and, and full disclosure here. It's not like I've read literature on this topic. I know there's probably a lot written about it, so I'm kind of just coming in. Yeah. Uh just, you know, saying things I think off I the read cuff one here. Foucault book in college. Uh sure. <laughs> I might all I, know I might have read that one too. <laughs> but 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 see if this makes sense to you. Okay. Yeah. So, in terms of purposes for punishment, sure. In society, we've got retribution. Yeah, retribution. One. The, we'll, the good old-fashioned favorite. Yeah, we'll come back to all of these. Mm-hmm. We got rehabilitation. Sure, I've heard of that. Okay, we've got deterrence. Deterrence, that's important. Okay, and then the last one, which I haven't seen mentioned as much, is containment. Containment. What's containment? Containment is literally we need you away from people because you're dangerous. Uh, that's We're literally like just containing you. Just like a rampaging Hulk and they need to be put in a box for everyone's safety. Yeah, to me this is separate from deterrence because sure. deterrence is kind of more of a forward thinking thing. And right. containment is like this is happening. We just need to contain you. Yeah, deterrence is deterring someone else from committing a crime, right? Whereas containment exactly. is literally just containing that individual so right. that they can no longer commit that crime. So that's what I kind of see as like, you know, the four points, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's, it's interesting, our whole justice system, because it's, you know, it's, it's doing all four of these in different amounts. Um, right. And you can, of course, argue over, you know, which of these things we should be prioritizing and yes. how much. Um, but let's start with retribution, everybody's favorite or least favorite. I mean, this is the one that you could argue is maybe uh, the hardest to justify, but it's also the one that I think people... Uh, feel most viscerally, right? Yeah. And it's probably the, the one that is most uh, foundational to how our system actually works. Yeah, it has the longest history and the most ancient supporters, I feel like. Yeah, and... I mean, all old books talk about this in one way or another. 
And this is basically the idea that a a crime should be met with a you know a proportional, uh, somehow proportional amount of suffering, right, to right. the suffering that was caused by the crime itself, right. Um, and uh, so now again, I'm not a big fan of this aspect of it. Again, I think you can make a reasonable case that we would have a better society if we sort of uh, deprioritize this as a value. Yes. In our, in our justice system. I would agree with that. Um, at the same time, you know, there's these very extreme cases, these mass murders and stuff. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to be calm and rational about those. You know, I mean, I think, you know, most humans, you know, a certain like urge for vengeance sort of peaks in your mind, you know, when, when you think about the most truly heinous crimes. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree that there is a urge for it, a desire to see uh, retribution carried out. I just, Yeah, I just don't think it's that rational when you think about it. Now, someone who's written about this specifically with respect to the future that uh, uh, John Danher turned me on to is a, a British philosopher named Rebecca Roche. Okay. Um, and uh, she wrote about primarily this retribution aspect and how this could be enhanced uh, in the future. Ah, yes. And I don't think she's advocating these things necessarily, but she's certainly trying to start a conversation about them. Right, right. So like with the mass murderer example, I mean, you hear this sometimes, like killing him once isn't enough. Sure. So like, is this where we're going with this? Like you could maybe resurrect somebody and kill them many times or something like that? Well, there's the Black Mirror version of this, right? right? Which is... uh, you know, we're going to, you know, put you in a simulated body and uh, for every one of your victims, we're going to murder you the same way. And then yes. we're just going to multiply that by 10 just because. Just because, you know. Just because you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Um. So there's that. She doesn't really talk about that, I think, because in, you know, modern advanced societies, we place there's there's a certain limits we have to work within. Right. We Most societies have this idea of, you know, humane and not cruel punishment. Right. So there's certain things that we tolerate, certain things we don't. Right. Um, You know, we tolerate life imprisonment. Uh, Many places tolerate the death penalty. Very few places tolerate straight up torture. Right. If they're like modern, what we consider civilized societies. I mean, obviously, there's places in the world that deviate from that. But. Right. um, So if, if we imagine, you know, a future society that's still sort of adhering to, you know, that is still has to uh, stick with what's considered humane, right? They can't just do the Black Mirror future where they just like literally put you through uh, hell, right? But they can say extend your lifespan, right? That opens up some possibilities because you see these absurd cases where, you know, some mass murderer gets five life life sentences or something. It's just absurd, right? They're, They're running right up against the limits of, you know, somebody only lives one life, like you were saying. Right. So, but... I'm, we're not talking about, of course, resurrecting them. We're talking about just natural life extension, which we've talked about in the past. You know, uh, it's possible with, you know, future technologies that people might live to be a thousand years old or longer even. Right. Um, and so you could start actually giving out sentences that are 500, 600, 700 years long um, by, you know, making sure that that prisoner stays alive, actually, you know, giving them whatever the advanced life extension technology is. And so I think that's sort of an interesting scenario to think about. Now, it's it's what's weird about that is if we're imagining we have this technology, right? Mm-hmm. Then everybody's living longer. Yeah. Right? So you wonder if maybe what matters more 
is not the absolute amount of time you're in prison, but the ratio of time you're in prison to the ratio of time you're likely to live. Sure. Because maybe 500 years in prison isn't that bad if you're going to live for 5,000 years because right. the ratio is still relatively low. Right. Um, there's just a lot of fascinating questions about that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it also matters how expensive it is to keep people alive in this way, right? Because at sure. a certain point, it seems like society would deny them the treatments as a way of saving money. <laughs> right, right. But this could be a way to, you know, punish someone who does a tr- commits a truly heinous crime right. in a way that's not straight up torture, that's sort of consistent with our values, um, and that utilizes future technology. So it seems to me very plausible. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound implausible. Um, another one that to me is, I think, a little less plausible is this sort of idea of slowing down time or the subjective experience of time. She sort of floats this as a possibility. I, you know, there are obviously certain drugs and states that sort of slow down the perception of time. The idea that you could control that well enough to, you know, make someone serving a year sentence feel like they're serving a 10 year sentence. I don't know that that's technology that's going to happen. I mean, you could obviously do that very easily with an emulated mind. Right. The exception to that would be a a digital mind of some right. kind. So if uh, an M or an AGI commits a crime, which I suppose might happen. And you run it at like a thousand times speed. That's its punishment, basically, right? I mean, you, you run it at this high speed, so it feels like it's in whatever prison or whatever situation you put it in for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. And then when it comes out, it's only been a few days, so you can still get whatever work out of it you were supposed to get out of it in the first place, right? So, you know, I mean, it does seem like... I, I could see that happening for digital minds, but I can't imagine that working. It seems like them. almost, yeah, the go-to punishment for, for digital minds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, another one that's mentioned, this is not a, a punishment directly, but just it does involve using future technology in, in the punishment realm, which is robot prison guards. Um, okay, right. Now, she doesn't elaborate on this point too much, but uh, she says, consideration of the welfare of prison staff limits how unpleasant prison can be made for prisoners. I guess because the human staff have to live and exist in that space and work in that space. Yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, I mean, I'm not an expert here, but that seems like maybe a, a statement that might need some defense. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, she doesn't. She doesn't elaborate that much, right, right. but but I, I can see what the point there is. There could be somewhere you could go with that. Sure. So those are some ideas. Um, and then of course, you know, if you're not concerned about humane punishment, then really the sky's the limit in the future, obviously. But I, I prefer not to. We've already did an episode right. on the future of hell, so right. we can right, right. we can set that aside for now. Yeah. What I want to talk about is the other three things. Okay. Right. So rehabilitation. Yeah, rehabilitation, which is something. It's like one of these Hansonian things that we say we care a lot about, but our our revealed preference seems to show that we don't actually care that much about it. Right. And I think, I mean, the tricky thing is that, you know, doing rehabilitation is not a very exact science, although we maybe don't try hard enough to get better at it. Um, But, uh, you know, it seems like kind of a hard thing to quantify, a hard thing to develop generalized techniques for because it seems like every case would be pretty individual yeah um and i think there are genuine concerns with moral hazard too like doing trying to do rehabilitation and retribution at the same time is inherently challenging i think right those things can be in conflict so i think some of the problems might stem from the fact that yeah we're those things are not a good pairing necessarily right um 
in the future, you could imagine particularly invasive versions of this that involve actually reprogramming somebody's mind. Um, right. Or their genetics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's interesting to think about. Um, I mean, that's a tough ethical question, I think, because it's so obviously invasive of a person and, and so ethically suspect in that way. Um, on the other hand, it seems like possibly a nicer alternative to the retribution option. Yeah, especially if you can avoid um, punishment by accepting some treatment or something. Yeah, I could see it offered as a choice. Right. Um, I think that's how you sort of get around, you know, the, the worst ethical the sort of like objections. The fact that you're violating someone's liberty so fundamentally yeah. is, is you present them this option of, well, you can serve a thousand year prison sentence or you can go in for a, you know, day long procedure where we're going to, you know, sort of like fix the parts of your personality that we don't like so much. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And like, yeah, it really depends on the technology and how well it works and what exactly it does to to interrogate the ethics of that, because it might be some if it's comprehensible to the person choosing it and it works very consistently and well might be argued that it is an okay thing to let them choose, but I could definitely see a lot of ways that could go where not pass ethical muster. Yeah, by all means, you could still argue that that's even giving that choice is a false choice because you're basically coercing them yeah. to do to make the choice by giving them another alternative that is a punishment. Yes. So I mean, it it doesn't totally evade the ethics. It just seems that seems like a more plausible way that society would would justify this to itself. Sure. Um. So that's rehabilitation. I don't know. Um, and then deterrence. Right. I guess deterrence, I mean, maybe is closely tied to retribution, right? I don't know. I think deterrence is sort of tied to enforcement. You think so? Okay. Because if you have a very high likelihood of being caught, which is now going back to that. Oh, yeah. It relates to the earlier topic. The surveillance sure. topic, right? Yeah. If you have a very high likelihood of being caught, that's going to be, I think, one of the strongest deterrents. That will mean that only people who are essentially expecting to get caught and willing to do it anyway are going to commit the crime in question, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody who really hates someone and is willing to die to kill them is going to still be able to do it. Somebody who is, you know, um, premeditating uh, a crime with every intention of being caught is still going to probably be able to achieve that crime. Um, but a lot of the marginal crimes, you know, the ones that you can affect, I think would be affected by, you know, just really high expectation of enforcement. Yeah. I guess that's a really good point. I mean, this is, yeah. Advanced future surveillance. Definitely. What it might lead to is it might, like you said, lower the, uh, you, you could lower the cost for committing a crime or you could make a punishment less severe if the, you know, enforcement success rate was higher, right? If you're more likely to get caught for it, we can maybe make the penalty a little bit lower. Right. Now, the question is how low can you make it, right? Right. Again, if it's just the kind of thing where, oh, now I can speed as much as I want um, because I'm rich and it's just like depleting my just bank a account a little bit. bill each month that's not that high. Yeah, know? that I have an assistant like write a check for, no right. problem. Right. Um, you know, then that's obviously not high enough. Right. But um, right. You could imagine a lot of situations where you could actually like make crimes less severe. And that would be good because that would um, 
the way this does interact with retribution is is this is one of the other excuses for why we have you know uh policies that are actually based on retribution right, right? is we it comes back to the hypocrisy thing right like we can say we're doing it for rehabilitation or we can say we're doing it for deterrence in particular right we can say this crime has to be punished so severely because the deterrence like element is right. so valuable, right. Right? right? Right. When really, maybe we just want the retribution aspect. Yeah. Right. But when you say, okay, no, the crimes are going to be caught no matter what, then the, the deterrence actually seems like a less valuable um, thing to strive for. Right. It seems like you're already getting as much of that deterrence effect as you can basically yeah. get by the high enforcement. Uh, so then you can rationalize the punishment. Um, and if it allows down you to a less a severe one, you know, given the particular crime. Right. Yeah. And and the moment you start lowering penalties, then maybe you can start doing more on the rehabilitation side. And that could all be very good, actually, for society. Right, right. But if we actually just want retribution and we're just giving lip service about those other things... Then none of that will happen. Sort of suspect is the case. Yeah. But none of that happens. And the technology just makes us more effective at finding people to be retributive against yeah 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 so you know there's always good and bad so futures the darker version i guess yeah yeah <laughs> um and so then the last category um is containment and this one is probably maybe the most interesting to me um and this is we may have touched on this before and and but this is the idea that you know you maybe don't have to punish people at all if you can just prevent them from committing the crime if you just like use technology to physically make it impossible you know yes. you put you know a special bracelet on them and we do this kind of stuff already you know you have like you know people have breathalyzers that they need to start their car um they have ankle bracelets to track where they're going and if they go into like certain areas you know like it gets them arrested immediately right things like that um you could imagine all manner of technology uh that's a little more advanced than that that you know physically restricts people from say being violent right? right um and and this could be this is still pretty invasive i think of people's freedom but um maybe not on the level of the kind of far-fetched rehabilitation personality changing stuff we're talking about yeah because that to me is almost like destroying the person's identity which so that's so very problematic but if you could have a you know a technology that was temporary you know that could be removed in 10 years time or something um reversible essentially but that say you know just like kicked into high gear and and just like you know temporarily paralyzed you if you tried to be violent you know <laughs> and like you know or immediately alerted the th authorities but just like literally like let's say it could like let's talk about the effective computing stuff we were talking about before right? right let's say you have a violent criminal and they've got these sensors on them and it's measuring their sweat level it's measuring their heart rate and the second it tells that they're going to be violent Right. It gives them like a mild electric shock or it, you know, or a nice strong boost of ketamine or something or, it, you know, it does something that just like physically. Yeah. It just doses them with something. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, so they can calm down. Right. And like the authorities can come or and or like and it doesn't have to be like scary authorities. It could be like a social worker that's there to like talk them down and give them therapy or something. I mean, sure. there, there are nicer and scarier versions of this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I uh, to me, that's interesting because it's like. You know, we're not going to try to punish you. We're just going to make sure you can't actually do the things. Right. Um, right. So it's like instead of putting people in a cage in order to uh, separate the dangerous person from society, you sort of build the cage into the person 
and you just try to build it right around the behavior you don't want. Exactly. Right? So the person can be a person in all the ways that society will allow, and when they try to be a person in the way that society will not allow, such as committing the violence, then, you know, their muscles are contracted against their will or their, you know, their brain and gets flooded with serotonin or whatever it is that we need to do to stop them from doing the thing. And as long as it's not horribly transformative or uh, damaging to them, um, then it doesn't sound like it's necessarily worse than giving them social isolation in a fucking prison, which is one of the worst things you can do to a person. Right. Right. I mean, you always have to remember when you're talking about this stuff, because all this sounds kind of terrible that you're comparing it to prison, which is really awful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, and it helps on the rehabilitation side. I think if people are actually outside possibly keeping down a job yes um part of society and not you know yes one of the best ways to be a functional member of society is to remain in it um this is a kind of obvious thing yeah yeah when you take people out of society even if it's for a good reason such as they're too violent to be um among others then uh you know when they get back out they all you know it's very common for them to have trouble uh readjusting so this would eliminate that um, and maybe allow people to have some positive experiences in society um, that can push them toward eventually being, you know, um, members of society that don't require this kind of intervention. Right. Well, in the last example I want to talk about, mm-hmm. um, you'll remember that part of Black Mirror, it's, it's you know, I, I can't remember exactly, but it's the end of one of the episodes where the, somebody has their sight altered so that everybody is, like, blocked out. Oh, yeah. Which in the way that played out in that episode, I I it, I didn't buy it. It seemed like like sort of a far fetched thing. But you can imagine if you had a pedophile or something, right? If they just like literally could not see children, right? If they were just if children were just blocked out blobs that like made you know like nonsensical sounds. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting thought. So like the pedophile <laughs> is like maybe the one situation where I start to lean toward the personality changing intervention more than the other ones. Right. If you could just make the pedophile not be attracted to children anymore. Well, and pedophiles may choose that. Right. I would, if I were a pedophile and that were an option, I would choose that and fast. Right. Because even if they regard it as very central to their identity, I think being able to live in society was is just so much better than uh, than that particular, you know, um, predilection. So that's one where it starts to starts to feel less um, like you're robbing them of something and, and more that you're curing them of something that while it is obviously not impossible for humans to feel is like totally incompatible with our society and the way our society works, you know, other things that are more like violence or, you know, um, th- things that are tolerated in society, but there's like, there's just specific circumstances in which you can't do them. You know, the, that those are much trickier because that's when you start to get into this identity thing, you know, it's like, well, if someone's just a bit more aggressive than other people, right? Like they should be allowed. We should have that diversity of people in the world. Um, of course, but you don't want them, you know, beating up random folks or something like that. Or, yeah. So there's a, yeah, it really is a challenge. Um, as the technology to deal with this stuff gets better, we're going to have to be very diligent. I think about not just, using our moralizing retribution minds 
which are, and really thinking through the consequences of, of applying different technologies to punishment. We may we'll definitely come back to this topic because I also want to talk about the future of law enforcement later. Yeah. Um, but consider this sort of a primer. Yeah, I think we should do some research for that one, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds really cool. All right, so before we go, I just want to remind everybody one last time that they can go to letgocomic.com. Letgocomic.com. And if they want to be real sweethearts, they can do like Randon did and give us a review on Amazon. We would love that. Until next time. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.